Uh, our theme this year, as you've heard, is servanthood. <clears throat> and for most Christians, uh, the moment you hear the word servanthood, your mind and your heart very quickly goes to think of all the ways that you and or your future ministries might help serve a world that is hurting and broken in need. And I want to say that is a very good instinct to have. So praise God for that. But on a, if you're doing a whole series on servanthood, it may be not be the best place to begin. I think it's really important before we look at the fruits of servanthood, that's to say all the things that we should be doing in the world, we should stop a bit and first establish what are the roots of servanthood, that's to say what is the theological foundation which is the basis for which all Christian servanthood emerges. Now why is this important? It's important for many reasons, but I guess most of all, one would have to ask, given the number of organizations that are out there committed to helping the world that is in pain and suffering, what is it exactly that makes the Christian ministry, uh, Christian ministries in general, Wesleyan or not, but we'll look particularly today at the Wesleyan emphasis, different from organizations like Save the Children, March of Dimes, Oxfam, the European Anti-Poverty Network, and on and on it goes. Is there a distinctive Christian voice in this amazing work of justice and service in the world that is qualitatively different from other organizations, uh, even though many of them do great, um, wonderful things that we affirm? And, but how do we understand and frame and execute our own work? 90% of humanitarian organizations are faith-based. So we have a tremendous, tremendous heritage in serving in humanitarian ways around the world. We have to also ask ourselves the question, given the fact that the, the church is, called, is, is being built, that's what God is doing in the world, he's building his church, how are even the Christian organizations related to this theological foundation? Some great works like World Relief, World Vision, Bread for the World, Habitat for Humanity, these are tremendous Christian organizations committed to servanthood. But even they would tell you their, their vision has never been that you would outsource, a local church would outsource their compassion to that group. And your job is simply just to give money, right? So the whole point is even these amazing organizations being very effective in the world that are Christian-based, Christian-led, are themselves built on some foundation which we need to be clarif clarify what that is, is distinctive about the Christian voice in all of this. Now, in order to do this, I thought it was best that we begin with the Old Testament. I see that uh, Dr. Oswalt's here. I see Lawson Stone here. He's all, all preached already a great sermon on servanthood already for us. Praise God, I've got some OT people here. It's a good place to start, isn't it? Uh, because, in fact, um, the Old Testament gives us a very important foundation that I want to lay as we begin to develop this point. Because, in general, the Old Testament, of course, gives us a number of huge redemptive themes, which we all can rehearse, that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, for example, we regularly celebrate, and we should, that Christ fulfills the great 
sacrificial theme of the Old Testament, right? He's both, you know, he fulfills the priesthood. He's priest and sacrifice. So here Christ comes as the final priest. We celebrate how Christ comes as the final prophet. Remember Moses said, a prophet like unto me who will come. Christ is that final prophet we're told in the book of Acts. You, all the way through, you find Christ fulfills the, the law. He's the new lawgiver, and he fulfills the law. All of these things come rolling through the Old Testament. Of course, probably most importantly, Christ comes as the second Adam. So the first Adam was in that first garden of, of uh, Eden where he fatally made this horrible, rebellious move and said, in effect, not your will, but mine be done. And then Christ comes and reverses the curse in that second garden of Gethsemane, where he says at that moment, not my will, but thine be done. And we have Christ reversing the curse and unfolding the redemptive plan that makes him be the federal head of a new redeemed community. So we look back at all of these great themes. We have tended, and we do, we rattle off, you know, Christ is the great prophet, priest, and king. All that is true. But what I want to say to you is that when next time you do that, because all of you have five fingers, I think. Prophet, priest, king, go ahead and do the fourth one, and servant. This is the, the theme which is so prominent in the Old Testament, which is fully received in the New Testament, but just never has quite it made it onto our lips and our vocabulary of how we understand what Christ is in the world. Prophet, priest, king, and servant. So we'll look at this by beginning with the servant songs. And if you know Isaiah, and again, Dr. Walsall has written a tremendous commentary on this, but if you look at Isaiah, you'll see that Isaiah has four what are called suffering servant songs or servant of Yahweh songs found in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and then the end of 52, 53. Now these four psalms or songs of, servant, uh, of servanthood uh, really have, they have an intercoherence in the four. It's what they call the four servant songs, and they carry uh, kind of a broadly speaking four themes. First of all, uh, Yahweh sends this servant on a mission. Uh, secondly, this mission involves vicarious suffering in various ways. Thirdly, though he suffers, he will be vindicated. And fourthly, he will bring salvation and justice and shalom of God, peace of God to the nations. So that brings all of these psalms into a, a wonderful intercoherence. And this first one, which is before us, uh, is quite remarkable. Now, the challenge that the Jewish commentators had, if you look at all these great servant songs, uh, you can't hear them immediately thinking about, you know, Christ as the servant, but it was not widely understood that way. So these amazing Isaiah psalms are not widely appreciated or really at all appreciated as messianic passages in, in their original kind of Jewish commentaries. They instead see Israel as collectively embodying the servant of God in the world. Now, it's even true that these texts that refer to the servant in the singular, they still see that as Israel. Israel is like singularly embodying the, the servant of God. And that goes all the way through, all the way to the, to the uh, Magnificat, where Mary uh, makes the final connection in her wonderful Magnificat, where she says, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. But at that point... When we have the emergence of Christ, everything changes. And the early Christians recognized that, in fact, Jesus was and is the fulfillment 
of this great servant motif. This is why we should say prophet, priest, king, and servant, because in fact, the New Testament does this. So for example, in uh, Peter's you know, great sermon, Acts 3, uh, and, and, and this would be a great thing to Google it out, you can see it for yourself, but he says, is that a phrase, to Google it out? Okay. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, all right? When he talks about the global mission of the Gentiles, when God raised up his servant, this is the language that's used in these early sermons. In chapter 4, when they have the conspiracy, to, they talk about the conspiracy against the Jew, uh, Jesus by the Gentiles and Jews, who they, the Pilate and the Gentiles had conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Uh, later, when they talk about, and they have that wonderful moment where the Holy Ghost falls on them and they have this great spirit-anointed moment that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to pray and praise God. And they say, Lord, stretch out your hand, perform miraculous signs and wonder, window, wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And this goes all the way through to the epistles of Paul and, of course, Philippians, most famous one, the famous uh, Philippians hymn where he talks about how he didn't consider equality with God something to grasp made himself nothing, taking on the nature or form of a servant. So this is a very, very important theme. And I believe that when we come to Matthew 12, we're really getting into the interiority of the incarnation. Matthew is really trying to reveal to us something that lies at the heart of the servant nature of God. Because he mentions in the opening of the passage that two things, really, the, uh, that Jesus is performing miracles and healing people, and then he goes away by himself, and he says, don't tell people who I am. Okay, it's a very interesting passage. I wish we had time to explore all of the dynamics of that, but he, he, then he said, this is fulfill what Isaiah said, and it actually refers to both sides of this. If we had time to explain it, we don't, but and then he quotes the first four verses of the servant song, quite lengthy, in, in Isaiah. Or I say in Matthew 12. So here you have Matthew's gospel explicitly identifying Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the servant theme, the servant song in Isaiah. So Jesus is this servant. Now let's look at, back to Isaiah, and what we'll see briefly is there's five things that are said in Isaiah about this servant song, servant that we now know is identified as Jesus in the New Testament that gives us, in fact, the foundation of why Christian servanthood is unique and distinctive. It's all laid out for us in Isaiah. Number one, we're told, and he opens up, you know, behold, you are my servant in whom I delight. He will, number one, be endowed with the Spirit. Now think about this. Here is the Father sending the suffering servant, who is the Son, who the Holy Spirit is coming down upon. Does it sound familiar in Matthew's Gospel? Of course, the baptism. Christ, the one true Israelite, he embodies the, he embodies the nation of Israel. That's why these things come together. He is Israel. He embodies Israel. He is the servant of Israel, the servant of Yahweh. And there he is in that embodiment. The Holy Spirit comes down upon him. Now, this is telling us that servanthood for Christians is framed in a Trinitarian way. We are sent by the Father. We embody the Son. We are in Christ, and we are anointed by the Holy Spirit. This is divine work that we're called up into. 
So this whole, all these verbs, these missional verbs to both these passages, God is sending, God acting, God anointing, God preaching, God healing, God rendering justice. This is not a passive God. This is not, you know, Aristotle's unmoved mover. This is God on the move. Amen? And I think that's great because in the ancient world, there's so many examples, like, like Cicero, for example, who makes the point that the Greco-Roman world gods were passive and inactive. He says, for example, I'm quoting Cicero about the, the gods of his time, they do nothing and they care for nothing. Quote, they possess limbs but do not make use of those limbs. May it never be said of the church that God has given us limbs and we don't make use of them as we walk into the world as the spirit-anointed servants of God in the world. Two, it says he'll bring forth justice to the nations. This is, again, the latter part of verse 1 of Isaiah 42. Now, here we find that justice in the nations, again, is dramatically different in the Christian vision. Number one, we've already seen it's Trinitarian framed. Secondly, we, we approach everyone in the world as those created in the image of God. The world does not understand that. So we, we envision the whole world, everyone in the world, as bearers of the dignity of the image of God. Thirdly, not only does the church go into the particular world of particular needs and hurts and suffering, the darkest places we go to, the most challenging places we go to, the most suffering places we go to, and the fact that 90% of human organizations are, are, are faith-based shows that's what we do. It's part of who we are. But the church also never loses sight of the fact, this is important kind of a cultural perspective, that in fact, while we go to the particular, we never lose sight of the universal, that everyone is in need of the justice of God. It doesn't matter if you're well-educated and you're well-endowed and you have plenty of money, da, 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 whatever else you may have, the world may have fame, fortune, blah, blah, blah. You still need the work of Jesus Christ in your life. So the church has this wonderful capacity of extending the message of the gospel and hope to those in particular need in all kinds of tangible ways, but those who it may not be seen, but in fact are profoundly in need of the justice of God in Jesus Christ. And finally, the Christian vision is framed by the shalom of God. So the Christian vision understands, yes, we understand power redistribution, all that, we understand that, but we understand also deeper behind that and beyond that in the Christian vision is a vision for reconciliation. Yes, we believe absolutely uh, racism, for example, isn't simply personal and transactional. It's systemic, it's structural, because sin doesn't, it's like a virus. It has no respect for persons, right? It, it only it infects everything it can find, including structures and institutions, everything. And the gospel addresses all of that. But the point is, at the end of that, the gospel's vision is for reconciliation, forgiveness, bringing people together. Thirdly, the servant of Yahweh extends this through humility rather than through power. Now, this is, this is remarkable, this whole passage. It's so unintuitive. The servant does not cry aloud, does not lift up his voice. This is a bruised reed he will not break. It's, it's nothing like what we, we understand in terms of how justice happens because we live in a Nietzsche, you know, uh, will to power world. 
where everything's in a zero-sum game. The loss of one is the gain of another, back and forth. But here is Jesus, the servant who models for us a way of walking through the world in humility and through humility seeing profound change. It's a totally unintuitive vision that this one who does not cry aloud, does not lift up his voice, even a bruised reed doesn't break, and yet he faithfully brings forth justice. Isn't that remarkable? Today the slogan in the culture is, no justice, no peace. And we totally understand that. We totally get it. But the amazing thing about the Christian vision, it actually doesn't deny either of those, but it flips them. And in some way that makes all the difference in the world. We, we would say, you're right, but it's not no justice, no peace. It's no peace, no justice. Because in fact, it's the peace of Christ which enables justice to come forth in the world. Fourthly, the servant is the light for the nations. Now here you get a really interesting thing between the Old Testament and New Testament. Because in the Hebrew, my Bible was upside down. I thought for me I had the Hebrew text there. <laughs> I got the Hebrew. I had that happen one time. I literally walked into my church one Sunday night, opened my Bible, and I realized I'd brought my Greek New Testament rather than my English Bible. And I was like, okay, Lord, here we go. <laughs> Gordon Conwell, come through for me, brother. <laughs> my seminar at the time. Anyway, um, but in this passage, um, he says, and the Septuagint says, and the coastlands wait for his teaching or his law. Okay, that's pretty straightforward what it says in the Hebrew. But when Matthew quotes it, he quotes it, and the Gentiles will put their hope in him. Like, what? What happens is the Septuagint, the Greek version of the New Testament, which of course they use in the New, they reward the text. They, they recognize that the coastlands here are in fact not just that God has a particular concern for coastlands, of course he does, but the point is it's connected for all of the unreached places, all of the people out there in the world. It's about the Gentiles, the nations, the Septuagint gets that. So it comes to the New Testament as, in him the Gentiles will put their hope. It actually awards on both ends of it that it is not simply the coastlands, it's all nations, he used the word ethne in the Greek, but also, it's not simply they wait for his law. You know, the Jews have a law, where's our law? It's that ultimately it's about the embodied law, Jesus Christ. In him, they put their hope. It's a very powerful fulfillment that Jesus Christ, now think about this from Matthew's point of view. There's no greater racial divide, no more antagonistic or deep racial divide in the early church than between Jew and Gentile. And here's Matthew saying to his readers, to all of us, that in fact, this good news of the Messiah is not just for us. This is for all nations. This is a huge, this is a, this is, we are in fact the fulfillment of this hope in this room because the gospel extended to all the nations. And of course the church is ethnically and linguistically and socially and racially the most diverse movement in the history of the world. And there's no movement in the world, both currently or historically, that's ever even come close to the diversity of the church of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, he concludes by saying in verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people. The servant, we now find out, is the covenant. See, we often think about and rehearse it as 
Jesus Christ brings the covenant or Jesus Christ is helping to make a new covenant. And all that, of course, is true. But at the fundamental level, he is the covenant. It is him that is the covenant. And this is the real, the wonderful Wesleyan reconciliation of all of this. Because in the secular world, they're doing horizontal work. And a lot of it is good horizontal work. They're do, out there doing work in the world. Now, in the Christian vision, the Wesleyan vision, if you simply say, we, we believe there's a vertical and a horizontal which must be kept together. The fact God has sent his servant Jesus into the world, and we are in Christ. He is the ministry of servant in the world. It's Jesus Christ. Everything flows from that foundation. Now, if we, as some Christians have done, we retract that, we don't have, we don't have a horizontal vision, all we have is a vertical vision, then what happens there? Then salvation gets reduced to justification. And that, that's our message. And some churches do that. That is not our vision. As, as important as justification is, we must have both a vertical and a horizontal mission. So we must have not only how we've been made right through God in Jesus Christ, but we are being transformed and the new creation is breaking into the present age. It is not simply, oh, we're going to have reconciliation in the, in the, you know, in the by and by, you know, in the, in, the, in the eschatological banquet. We are going to have that, but guess what? It must begin now. We must embody it now. So you have this wonderful vision for, for uh, horizontal work to the vertical. Now, if you'll go the other extreme and say, well, we're not going to really mess around with the vertical. We're just going to do horizontal work. Then we're nothing more like, we're like the March of Dimes of Prayer or something. We don't have that the power of all this the powerful force of God doing his work in the world. Because we are, after all, participating in his mission in the world. So we must reduce, I'm not sure if this is a proper phrase, but we must reduce the horizontalization of the church. And a lot of churches have been reduced to nothing but a horizontal mission. So the Wesleyan vision is to bring together both the tremendous vertical work of God in Jesus Christ. He is God's servant in the world. And then this horizontal movement where we go out into the world embodying that mission, anointed by the Spirit, and sent on the mission from the Father. This is the great insight of Isaiah, quoted by Matthew, that we worship a God who has sent his servant into the world. And this is the foundation of all servanthood. Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, king, and... Amen. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are the servant of God in the world, that you have come as a servant, the towel and the basin, the cross, the empty tomb. All of these images are so important to what it means to follow you in the world. Lord, we pray that you would anoint us and bless us, that we too might be your servants in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.